everyone and welcome to Ground Control. This is the first of a series of videos that we'll be doing as we work through the uh, coronavirus situation. Ground Control was actually conceived a number of months ago uh, as a basis for us actually being able to communicate to you on a regular situation. Uh, fortunately, in all the uh, construction of what we're doing for uh, these productions, uh, we're now able to actually provide you with regular communication on this black swan event that we're actually experiencing now. And it's great um, that we're actually able to do this in a way that enables you to actually access it wherever you are in the world um, and hopefully uh, keeping safe. It's with great pleasure this morning that I actually have with me Malcolm Palmer, who is a, a senior partner at Joseph Palmer & Sons, uh, one of Australia's oldest uh, stockbroking uh, businesses. As you know, um, uh, Joseph Palmer & Sons are our Australian equity uh, mandate provider and have been with us uh, virtually since the inception of our care philosophy. Uh, it's great to actually have Malcolm here to talk with us and, and share with us some of his views on what's going on in this unusual world at the moment. Malcolm, welcome today uh, and uh, thank you very much for taking time. Obviously a very, very busy time for you and your team. Uh, I'm wondering if you could just, as an outset, and I know um, I've experienced this with some of our advisors already and their clients, can you explain to me what the difference between monetary policy and fiscal policy is? Sure, it's a topical point, Graeme, and, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to the advisors and uh, in this troubled time and give the uh, information I might be able to provide. Uh, monetary policy is dictated by central banks. Central banks of the world are generally, in fact, are supposed to be independent from governments and they act, act as uh, an operator of the currency systems, the monetary systems, the provider of the monetary system supply. So they have tools, if you like, in their toolkit that can be used called monetary tools or monetary policy, such as the provision of interest rates and the liquidity systems in the banking. So that's the monetary policy the reduction or the raising of interest rates, the printing of money through quantitative easing programs, the bond buying and liquidity systems through the, through the um, banking system. Fiscal policy, on the other hand, is dictated by governments themselves and the fiscal settings they apply are going to be driven by their budgets, their capacity to spend or to raise money through taxes and at the moment there's a combination of the two happening. Monetary systems used by the Reserve Bank in Australia or the Federal Reserve in America and fiscal changes being set in place by the government. Fantastic. Well, that's very, very helpful. I'm sure people were quite often worrying about what, what's the difference between the two and I think some people use it on an interchanged basis. I'm, I'm sure some of the politicians do as well too. Look, let's talk more about market dislocation at the moment. Where do you think we are with this market dislocation? Well, it's severe. That's the first thing to say. And there's no sugarcating anything that we're going to talk about today because it is quite severe. The market itself, the stock market, and but also the currency markets and the fixed income markets have been severely dislocated by a sense of panic. And markets themselves around the world have got this amplification effect applied to them by the algorithmic trading that's going on. It's pretty important that we understand this, uh, that in the stock markets, for example, about 80% or even more of all transactions that flow through stock exchanges are actually driven by the algorithms of computers as opposed to the wow. rational decisions that the humans will make to say we're going to buy that share or that sell that share. So when you get a, a route going on and there's a dearth of buying, for example, the algorithm it's tend to amplify the downside and the upside and we're getting these large swings, not just in individual markets around the world, but in 
commodity prices, in individual stocks, in fixed income securities, uh, driven by the very scope or size of the computer trading that's going on. That will clear in due course, and some people say to me occasionally that it's a, you know, isn't it a bad thing that computers control the stock market pricing? That's what it is for short periods of time, because we see that at work now. But in other periods of time, it's actually, and most of the time, in normal markets, algorithmic computer trading is a good thing because it enhances what we call price discovery and creates liquidity in the market. So if you need to go and buy a share, there's always stock available because of the high liquidity. One other observation through all of this, is the role that exchange-traded funds are playing and other, other forms of managed investments. And they also play a very good role across the marketplace in normal times. But in an exchange-traded fund, when there are liquidations coming out of the fund, the algorithm that sets the liquidation into the underlying securities that are, that are the components of the fund, so take, for example, the ASX 200 exchange-traded fund, when somebody sells that individual security, the underlying sale of the stocks that represent that sale is 200 companies. And the algorithm takes bears no reference whatsoever to whether that shares up or that one's down or that one's good or that one's bad. It just sells all of them. <laughs> and when you have a, a dislocation in the market and you have a bid offer spread, so the buyer in the market and the seller, and the buyer's dropping away and the seller is an algorithm, they're just chasing the bid down. And that's what's been going on and creating these vast and amazing swings in prices in the last week or two. That's amazing. I do remember in uh, 2008, nine. Um, the, when the uh, the US was in free fall, uh, the markets were shut for a period of time. Um, we haven't seen that happen here. Uh, have we just not got to that stage where it, uh, in a day that it actually causes concern? We haven't hit triggers here, uh, yeah. so, but the United States has. There's been four or five shutdowns in the New York Stock Exchange in the last week for short periods of time. Um, and the futures market in the United States at least three times in the last week has had temporary shutage, shutdowns as well, simply because they breached the 5% thresholds upon which a shutdown is triggered. Right, OK. Look, you and I worked together in the 1987 crash, and not long after the 87 crash, we actually had the, the unlisted property trust uh, crash as well. And then uh, not long after that, the recession we had to have with, uh, with Paul Keating. Uh, so we went through a, a fairly difficult time. Um, we're seeing um, impacts from an economic perspective um, going to be played out through this, uh, through this black swan event. Uh, can you give me a bit of an idea of what you think those economic impacts are likely to be? Sure. Um, and, and first of all, going back to previous crises, because I think there's a, there's a relevance of, um, of understanding from history. And the 1987 through 1992 three period was driven by probably a fullness of economic activity, by um, an, an over-exuberance through capitalist era. We were on the back of the a couple of oil booms that happened in the 70s that preceded that. Uh, interest rates were very high, so the, the circumstances were somewhat different. But nevertheless, the market reactions were fairly similar. There was a short, sharp um, correction in the stock market that actually took a while to play out in the following years. Then it was followed by a recession in 1992, the one you say we had to have, thanks to Paul's, Paul Keating, and consequently it took a while after that because if you recollect in 1994 we also had a bond market dislocation where yes. interest rates for no apparent reason went sharply higher for a short period of time. So the recovery phase in the 90s was sort of curtailed by that event. And so that was one area. Then in the, the, the time after that was in the sort of 2000 time. So Australia didn't suffer that because it was the dot-com boom and bust and we didn't have much exposure to it. But the United States went into, into a small recession then. And the market then bottomed really in 2003. In fact, the day the Gulf War started in 2003 in March was the beginning of the 
bull market that then lasted all the way through to 2008. So a very strong period of the cycle changes happened back then. The financial crisis itself um, has some reference or relevance to now because it's going, it was accompanied by an economic slowdown of some substance and I suspect that, I don't suspect, uh, it's clear as day, that an economic slowdown of substance is uh, ahead of us now. And so the question now is just how deep that's going to be and how long lasting. And because the event, as you rightly call it, is a black swan event, a left field event, an unexpected event that's causing this, it's very difficult to gauge exactly how deep and how long the slowdown is going to be, except to say serious. It's going to be almost certainly a March quarter negative GDP print for Australia and almost certainly a June quarter negative GDP print, which means the technical recession gets reported in, in around about the third quarter of the year. That's not good news for the economy. It's uh, accompanied by a very sharp rise in unemployment, by a higher incidence of bad debts, by lots of companies announcing profit downgrades as a consequence, and by a, a fractious stock market during the course of the year as it tries to price itself relative to that economic disaster. So it's not, it's not easy to portray a good picture because there isn't one. When we look around the world, part of the cause of this, of course, is that the supply chain has been disrupted. So when you have a supply chain disruption, ports close down, factories close down, even for short periods of time, it disrupts the flow of business, of manufacturing, industrial activity, and ultimately of consumption. And when that happens, it, the, the, the cascading effect through all forms of business is pretty negative. And that's what's ahead of us, statistically speaking, which is why your initial question about monetary and fiscal policy is so important now, because for a little while, with all these uncertainties, it's really the only thing we can rely on to provide a stimulus to the recovery. Right, OK. Well, the R word, recession, is, is misunderstood, and you've given us a bit of an explanation there. But it's, it, it's uh, in summary, uh, two negative quarters puts us into the recession. That's right, and of course it's, a, it's an oft-used word for an economic slowdown, but, but normally recessions are going to be 0. Point something of a percent of GDP, so they're not particularly large. We're going at around about half a percent of GDP growth per quarter. So to go to half a percent of growth to, say, negative 0. 0.3 of decline, these are not big numbers in the scheme of things. So there's a bit of a frightening um, element to the word recession as opposed to the reality of it normally. Look, uh, one of the interesting things that um, I'm um, looking at through the, uh, the discussions around where we are with this black swan event, uh, to me is um, in all the other events, and I've been in this industry for a fairly long time now and been through just about every uh, one of those crashes in, in recent history, um, the, a lot of the crashes were actually as a result of um, uh, capital markets, uh, I think you used the word exuberance in doing it. This is not uh, um, uh, a situation where that's been the case. And I noticed that the response from uh, government uh, to, uh, to dealing with some of these issues um, is, is taking that into account. In other words, we're seeing, as we talked about this morning, uh, Qantas uh, actually putting people onto annual leave, um, you know, laying them uh, off for uh, 20,000 employees. We're seeing the governments uh, responding with, uh, with, uh, with, with stimulus. In the past, um, most of the occasions I can remember uh, was that because it was caused by capitalism, um, governments um, weren't necessarily putting an enormous amount of, uh, of uh, effort into people retaining jobs and, and uh, um, helping people in the, particularly in that employment and small business end. They let the markets actually do what they needed to do. 
Um, what's your view on that difference that we're seeing this time? Well, the, well, the view in, in terms of that, Graham, is that it's happening here differently this time. So in the United States, for example, and many parts of Europe and, and indeed Japan, there was a lot of government intervention into business post the global financial crisis because the downturn there was so deep compared to what we enjoyed, which was only a shallow um, downturn. So the governments here, or the Reserve Bank, didn't have the need because the economic downturn wasn't sufficient for there to be intervention of the type that we're having now. But it certainly did happen in the United States. There was a lot of corporate bailouts of the motor industry. There was a lot of corporate bailouts of banks and a lot of provision through the quantitative easing programs that took place post the financial crisis. Quantitative easing, remember, being a phrase that was invented by central bankers to confuse the public because <laughs> what does it mean? Yeah. It means we print money and buy bonds. Okay. They should just tell us that, they're printing money and buying bonds rather than calling it quantitative easing. Anyway, that process itself is the stimulatory process because by printing money that which hitherto didn't exist and pushing that liquidity into the finance market through the banking system and lower interest rates to push it through to the consumer is a stimulatory action that was very, very defined during the post-financial crisis era in America and Europe and Japan but wasn't needed here. This time it's different here. Okay, which is the point of difference. We now are suffering the same downturn. We're not immune because of the global ramifications of coronavirus. And consequently, the Reserve Bank and the government here has said all of those tools in the toolbox of the US Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan that they've used in the last 10 years, we're going to dig into our toolkit now and pull that one out. We're going to start printing money, which they announced this week, and buying bonds to push interest rates down, flood the market with liquidity, put our interest rates down to zero and create a, a very significant stimulatory effect down the track to try and see us through this crisis. So, so um, it's probably important for us to talk about company profits on that basis uh, and also probably uh, the impacts to our uh, portfolio as well. So that, that on, a, on a broader basis, let's talk about company profits overall and then we can chat a little bit about the portfolio. Yeah, and of course the, co the company profits follows through from the economic activity, doesn't it? So if there's a slowdown in consumption, a slowdown in employment and a slowdown in industrial manufacturing and trade, then there will be, a, as a consequence, a slowdown in the rate of profit growth for corporations. Now it's not necessarily negative, um, in some cases it'll just be lower profit growth. But in many other instances there'll be negative um, results whereby companies don't pay dividends at all or they don't make a profit or make a loss or they have large write-offs or indeed they go broke. Um, now we're hoping that within the ASX 200 universe that we follow there won't be any of that latter, the bankruptcies, but there might be as this, um, as this crisis wears on. And it's very hard at the moment to gauge the extent of that and, and one of the key considerations on the stock market today, not just here but everywhere, is the dislocation of prices because the investors who are setting the prices on a day by day, whether they be real investors or computers, are seeking to predict the future. So today's prices in the stock market are the, the expectation of what's ahead. So dire, okay, prices have gone down, stock markets are saying crook. Is it too low already? Is it not, not low enough? Is the $64 million question as we go forward when you translate today's share prices to the reality of the economic outlook and the outcomes and the profitability of businesses over the horizon. It's a very hard question to answer. What I've done for now is in the ASX 200 companies that we cover, I've just taken a knife to all the profit projections. But it's a guess because nobody knows. And day by day by day, companies are coming out saying we withdraw our guidance because we don't know either. So today, for example, just this morning, Sonic Healthcare, one of our favourite companies, is largely unaffected in its long-term business. It's a pathology business, owns every second pathology medical centre in Australia, yet it 
came out with a, we withdraw our guidance because we don't know statement. Shares go down 11% because the market's dislocated. Mm. So this is what's going on with corporations on the stock market, even good companies like that. They're being affected by the we don't know factor. And that's where we stand as well. So it's very hard to gauge these things in the middle of the crisis, um, except to say that always, and your experience and my experience with the stock market crisis in the past, is that always during the crisis, when you look back on it in the future, you say, well, wasn't that cheap? <laughs> so yes. now we need to gauge whether it wasn't that cheap. Is that this week or was it next week or was it last week or was it in six months' time? But the fact will be in a few years' time we look back and say, wasn't 2020 a wonderful time to buy some good shares? And that's one of the elements which we're wrestling with at the moment as to when we do that, how much we do it, and how clients and the advisors will have this uh, dilemma as well. What type of risk profile is in their clients' uh, portfolios as to whether it should be tweaked up or down? Mm, that's great. Look, it, it is, it is um, a situation where um, we need to, uh, to be conscious of being able to, to ride out this um, market uncertainty because when you've got completely, completely irrational situations or even systems um, with algorithms which are built on a basis of what humans thought were going to happen as well, uh, you'll get this, uh, this uh, quite irrational process. Mm. Um, you mentioned to me uh, earlier today about Sydney airports as a good example. Uh, can you give me, uh, uh, just from the people who are listening to this, uh, an, an, an example, that, that is an example and how that works so that people can get a bit of a feel for what the market is actually doing. Sure. And, and every company has, has a, a characteristic on its valuation that needs an explanation. Sydney Airport's an interesting share. Uh, it's a stapled security. And it is the business that doesn't actually own the airport in Sydney. It has the operating concession out until 2097. So it's got another 77 years to extract cash flow from the operations of the airport, the landing fees, the retail operations, the car parking, the taxis and so on. So its share is valued on the stock market as the net present value of the future cash flows for the next 77 years. Now any discounted cash flow calculation is going to cap that out at 10 or 20 years, right? Because everything beyond that is so heavily discounted that it's not worth anything anyway. Yeah. But the point at the moment is that even if Sydney Airport doesn't have any revenue for a period of time, or much less revenue, it's still going to have 76 and a half years of cash flow to come, yeah. to which today's share price should bear some reference. Yet $9 a month ago, $4.70 yesterday, seems to be a pretty sharp reaction to what might be a relatively short shutdown at the airport. So. It doesn't, say, it doesn't mean for a second that the $4.70 doesn't go back to $6 or down to $3 for a while whilst the market's in this state of uncertainty. But they're the types of things we look at in terms of the, the calculation of value in a business. Putting that on one side, then you need to look at the balance sheet of the company. Does it have debt due this year? Is it going to go broke? Does it have the capacity while the cash flow is reduced to, to finance its operation? And all those sorts of things are important as well. And as a secondary, if, um, as, a, as a, another company that in a similar sort of distress is Centre Group, which is Westfield. So the Westfield shopping centres in Australia, um, a company called Centre Group, we don't own it in the portfolio, mm -hmm. but just for conversational reasoning, it has a, an asset value of $4 per share. So the properties themselves, Westfield at Miranda and Sydney for CBD and all around the country, are worth, bricks and mortar, four bucks. Yet yesterday's share price was $1.50. So what does that mean? What's that 
market telling us? Is it completely wrong? Is it a crisis of such unprecedented proportions that even these big shopping centres are going to halve in value? We just don't know. Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting, interesting isn't it? A, I did see from, uh, from Westfield uh, an announcement uh, about how they were looking to help their, uh, their shops because uh, I think the point in time issue where we, we know it's a time frame but we don't know what that time frame is, um, but it's not for the rest of, uh, of humanity, no. for the rest of the, uh, the life of the world. Um, and so therefore um, um, what they're trying to do is keep those shops going and make things easier for mm -hmm. them uh, so that when we move out of this, uh, of this um, uh, virus uh, environment, this black swan event, uh, into a uh, situation where things go back to some degree of normality, those shops will continue to operate and do that. So it, it, is, uh, it is an interesting time mm. in doing it. Um, looking at the portfolios we've got, and I noticed that um, uh, cash has come down, which means you've been buying a few things. Um, can you give us a little bit of a rundown on our, on our Australian um, equity enhanced portfolio and uh, how you've been looking at that? Sure. So we came into this crisis with 31% uh, cash in the equity portfolio, which was built up over the course of the last year or two or three as we found it difficult to find cheap opportunities, so we can summarise it in that manner. So the 31% cash was a, it was a high number for a share portfolio, and we've chosen to put about half of that in, back into the market in the last week or so. And we've done so because the valuations that we see them and there's, there's a little bit of uncertainty about the valuations I explained, but the mm -hmm. valuations as we believe them to be the case as we look forward are now very cheap and an equity portfolio that has the capacity to be in the stock market should spend its money when the market's down. Now that's a matter of course. It doesn't mean for a moment that individual investors shouldn't have cash and whatever in their own portfolio structures through the care system, but it does mean that the equity bit of it when the market's down should have some shares applied to it. So we've bought a few things lately. We've just started buying just last week, Sydney airport for the reason I illustrated. Just a little bit, just 3% of the portfolio. We've also started buying Ancel. Now Ancel is a company which we wanted to buy for a while but the price at sort of closer to $30 was a little bit out of our reach. They're $23 now and to us that's a good enough price. Ancel is the company that manufactures the protective gloves for surgeons and hospitals, whatever. So they're in the space that is obviously beneficial in this coronavirus crisis. They will also presumably have a lower cost of production with commodity prices like oil and um, petrochemicals going down so much, there's a possibility that they'll have a lower cost of production. So we're buying those. We're also buying a little bit more in some of the healthcare stocks like Sonic, um, for, you know, even though notwithstanding today it's a, it's a good value share. And we topped up a, a fraction with BHP. Um, BHP is an interesting company, or always an interesting company, but the iron ore price is $92.50 US per tonne, hasn't budged at all during this crisis is one thing that hasn't moved. But one thing that has moved is the Australian dollar, which is now 57 cents to the US. So every tonne of iron ore that BHP pops onto a ship, or Rio Tinto or Fortescue, is now getting a lot more in Australian dollars simply because the dollar's collapsed. And they sell their iron ore spot. So it's like a money-making machine over there at the moment in the Pilbara. And so long as the volumes don't fall away, these companies are going to stay very prosperous. And it wouldn't surprise me if the same types of businesses like those, which saw us out of the GFC pretty quickly, helped the economy going forward as well. So I've bought a little bit more BHP in the portfolio. Yeah, certainly the, the reduction in the Australian dollar is something which I think is unestimated uh, or underestimated in respect to some of the, uh, the buying or selling that's been going on at the moment. 
a lot of people say, oh, 57 cents, but uh, in 94, we were looking at, I think, about 46 or 47 uh, in the uh, US cents to the Australian dollar. Yeah, so it was quite, some, quite, uh, quite a, a bit less than we are today. And the Australian dollar, Graham, has, has got a, a few, there's four things that cause it to move. Okay, so the first is relative interest rates, which is anybody's guess at the moment because they're all zero. <laughs> so that's sort of un, uncertain. The second is commodity prices. Now, commodity prices in the sorts of things we export are pretty good. Iron ore, coal's fallen a little bit, but agricultural products have gone up in value in some instances. So that should be actually causing the Australian dollar to rise, not fall. The third is terms of trade. So when we have a weakening terms of trade, then the currency will fall and vice versa. That's probably positive as well, given, again, the commodity prices. And the fourth is a thing called purchasing power parity, which is like, if you like, relative inflation. Um, and that's neutral as well, because nobody's got any inflation. So it's a bit unusual that the Australian dollar is so weak. And it's got to do with the Australian dollar being a risk-based currency, um, pro-cyclical they call it, economically yep. cyclical. And when things are uh, risk-based, then everything gets sold, which is what's happened to the dollar. Hugely beneficial for um, shares that have got foreign earnings. And if you just look through the portfolio, we can the investment portfolio for care, you can segregate the businesses with domestic earnings from foreign earnings and see their share price movements differently. Amcor is up another 8% today because all its earnings are foreign. Brambles have held okay, all its earnings are foreign. CSL, 80% of its earnings are foreign, so it's done quite well. Um, so these companies that have got a buffer, if you like, from the exchange rate have been better than domestic businesses, which might have suffered more. Macquarie's a bit like that too, isn't it? Macquarie's an interesting one, Graham, because the business has transitioned itself from the risks associated with capital markets into more an infrastructure-type bank, and there's a little uncertainty as to the extent of how you know, dislocated markets might affect their infrastructure assets. So the share price has tumbled quite sharply from, you know, peaked at 140 down to in the 80s now. Uh, but that now looks like a, a very appealing long-term investment price to us. Yeah, very good. Um, one, of, one of the things that you've just reminded me of, uh, which I think is probably important for people to get a handle on as well, um, we often hear about what we, what's been termed the trade-weighted index. Uh, and my understanding of the trade weight index, and you can correct me because you're the investment professional, it's, a, it's the basket of, um, of our five major trading partners, mm -hmm. um, which is determined like an average of a currency from the perspective of, of, of when we're trading with people. But those trading partners, uh, the number one is China by a long way, number two is Japan, um, Korea's up there as well, Korea, with Japan, yeah. Um, no, I think the US is probably number four US or five. Only has, we only have about 5% of our exports go to the US now, so it's fallen way away down the list. It, it's nearly all Asia, our trading partners, and, um, and in a sense it would seem that they've taken more um, action about coronavirus earlier, and consequently it may be that they pick up a little bit earlier as well on the other side of this crisis. And that could be good for us because our exports could be maintained. It, it, it could could be good for us. Remembering, however, that when you talk about Australian exports, a large chunk of them are not necessarily iron ore or coal or ag, ag products. They're services like tourism and education. They're export industries, right, because they're foreigners buying Australian goods. So, um, th and that's gone to sleep completely. Okay? Mm. The tourism and education markets are, are, are dead for a while, and that's going to be a big negative drag on the economy as a consequence. Malcolm, um, as we said earlier, you and I have known each other for a hell of a long time now. 
and I value your personal opinion as well. Um, a lot of investors, this will be the first time they've been through anything like this. A lot of advisors will be the first time they've been through anything like this. Um, I think, importantly, I'm trying to keep with our our team a, a steady, rational approach to things because I've been through this before. In in your personal view, um, how do you? How, what would you say to investors and to advisors out there today about what we're going through today and how they should approach it? Graham, um, Franklin Roosevelt said, the only thing to fear is fear itself. And it's a pretty good statement. That was in the Great Depression. And, and there's been other comments around that line. And Malcolm Palmer would say that, you know, when optimism gets to its zenith, it becomes greed. And when pessimism becomes it, it's, it's trough, it becomes fear. And so I've trained myself over the generations of ups and downs is to reverse that psychology and to teach myself that when I feel sick in the guts, frankly, about markets, it's a buy time and when I feel euphoric it's a sell time and those sorts of um, thought processes are at work now and I'm scouring the world for good investment ideas at the moment. I'm not necessarily throwing clients money in because times are so uncertain but there's so many good businesses in all countries that are now on sale that it would be folly for an equity manager to let this period pass without putting a lot of attention to valuations that might be around for us. And that's around the world. So that's why we've spent a bit of money in the um, equity portfolio. Uh, we'll probably pause now for a while at 17% cash. So we've still got a big lump of cash there and, uh, and see what's around the corner as the next few months progress. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Uh, we all always hear this expression, uh, this time it's different, but usually we hear that expression at the top of a market rather than the, the actual bottom of a market. Um, in respect to coming out of major uh, impacts, uh, do you think this time is different? This time is different only in the sense of the black swan event itself being a health-driven as opposed to economic-driven uh, calamity. Because it's health-driven, the connection between the, the health aspects and the economy are untested because it hasn't happened before. So there's always a point of difference between the crisis and the recovery speed. In this instance, let's say, let's take an optimistic and pessimistic uh, approach to it. The op optimistic approach would be the incidence of coronavirus starts to decline in a few weeks time or whatever, whatever the period is. Airports start to open again, business is back on and the stock market will rise quite quickly. The pessimistic is this will drag on forever, will drag on for a year or so, and there'll be more closures and there'll be a great recession around the world. And there'll be so many bankruptcies and calamities that, you know, it's going to take a long time to get out of. So somewhere in amongst that, we've got to make these decisions as to whether or not it is different or not different in terms of the speed of the downside and the recovery upside when it comes. And yes, the cycles are the same, the valuation me methodologies are the same, shares are always valued the same way. Nothing's ever changed. The evade on earnings, net present value of future cash flows, EBITDA ratios, balance sheet strength, all those sorts of things will apply now and in the future. So nothing ever changes. But sometimes the cause changes. And the other thing that changes is the components of the stock market. So in every cycle you have different sectors that are strong and weak. And this time around, the, you know, the strong companies in the lead up to this have been in technology. So the Amazons and Googles of the world are the masters of the universe and they've been so strong and so successful that they go into this downturn in a, in a really fantastic position frankly because they don't have any debt for, for one. So you have this very strong financial position in technology but anybody who's trying to catch up 
sort of like Afterpay, for example, these sorts of technology companies that have got you know, risk associated with them, they're, they're really difficult to, um, to invest in and, and sort of very troubled in their future as well, that type of company. Just to finish off on, and I've been watching this closely myself, uh, is um, whether we think the US have got a, a good handle on what, uh, what has actually been going on. Um, when we went through the, um, the uh, 2008 GFC, um, we you know, were conscious of how quick the US came out. Now, my gut on that was basically that because around two-thirds, I think, of, uh, of GDP in the US is internal consumption. Um, and uh, even if they do go further down because they haven't got a handle on it, the speed at which they come out always seems to be much quicker than how we come out of it. Yes, that's right, Graham. And we need to remember, um, as a small player in the world of economics, Australia, that America is the dominant player at about half, half of the stock market of the world and a, the world's biggest economy. So they've got the, the levers and the capacity to recover quite quickly, which is why the US dollar is strong. So if the US was in a mess, the US dollar wouldn't be going up. It's the reserve currency of the world and it's a strong place to invest even still. And I, I noticed that um, you know, Magellan said yesterday that they're holding all their money in US dollars, right, all their cash, because that very reason and, and why not. So the US, however, having a handle on this, before the coronavirus crisis, we had talked a lot and I've talked a lot mm. to the advisors at PD Days about something that's looming in terms of overvaluation of markets and economic downturns and how the central banks have expended all their ammunition already by money printing and, you know, there's a lot of debt around. All the things we're worried about anyway, well, they still exist. But now I guess that's been pushed back even further because the US response to this, as has been Australia and Europe and everywhere else, is to go and print a heap more money. Mm. So they're going to print another trillion over in America or thereabouts. They're going to push it into the monetary system. They're going to swell the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve again. There's going to be a lot of bluff and bluster going around politics because the other event of this year, of course, as we will know, is the US election. Yes. And, uh, of course, Donald Trump, in a sense, can't afford to lose it because there's quite a lot of people out to get him if he does. Uh, <laughs> so I'd be fearful if I was him. So the, and of course now you've got Joe Biden who's almost the presumptive um, candidate for the Democrats and that will now lead into a lot of pronouncements over the coming months, some of them real, some of them not, as to how they deal with this crisis. I'm guessing though, and it seems to be the case, partly to do with the election necessity, partly to do with the actual necessity of the crisis, that Donald Trump and his team are now responding very aggressively to this. A little belatedly, it would seem, but they're really pushing a solution now. And I suspect they will be on top of it like they were last time and that they'll be in a you know, reasonably strong position on the other side whenever that happens to be. Fantastic. Malcolm, thanks very much for your time today. We really appreciate it. We're extremely uh, glad and happy that we've got you looking after our Australian uh, equity enhanced portfolio. Um, we think it's in, in really safe hands uh, and we, we do really appreciate the effort you're putting on on behalf of all of our investors and our advisors uh, in, uh, in looking after their, uh, their money in these difficult times. Thank you, Graham. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thanks for your time today. Uh, again, we will be doing more of these uh, sessions with people. Uh, I would actually encourage you to think about uh, how you handle this uh, environment. 
it's an unknown for everybody. The professionals don't know what's actually going to happen, but they're making judgment calls based on the, their best available information with your interests uh, at heart. And I'd encourage you to think about uh, that process. Uh, this is about time and getting through where we are and how long and, uh, we'll be able to take to get back to what we have some degree of normality. And I'd encourage you, if uh, you're uh, a client, uh, to talk to your advisor regularly. Uh, and uh, from an advisor's perspective, I'd encourage you to talk to your clients regularly to make sure the communication flows actually continue and that, uh, that everybody is up to date with things as much as possible. Everybody is going to be, uh, have different uh, responses to what we're going through. You might be nervous. Um, express the nervousness. So it's no use you being silent. If you're worried, please talk to your advisor. Uh, for those of you out there who are bullish, particularly on, on some of the sale opportunities that we might see with some of the stocks, uh, they're fine. Just remember, you, if you're in small business, you may need some of your money to, uh, to actually um, uh, fund your business in the, uh, in the coming months. Don't necessarily put it all into the stock market. Uh, make sure you understand what your cash flow needs are going to be uh, and make sure there's sufficient cash flows for you to do that as well. Uh, once again, thanks very much for your time and looking forward to our next presentation.